Welcome to this special report on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Luann Reeb. Today, we're going to talk about a case in Boston involving four men wrongly convicted of a murder that happened back in 1965. Each of them spent decades in prison. Two died in prison, Henry Tomilio and Louis Greco. Joe Savati and Peter Lamoni lived long enough to see their freedom, but only after a very long legal journey. It was proven that the FBI relied on false testimony of a mob informant named Joe the Animal Barboza to convict those men. The government did not disclose evidence during trial, and they were framed in what you might think is a plot for a movie. But it's real. Joe Savati and his family endured his imprisonment for 30 years, battling to prove his innocence. And now Joe Savati and Peter Lamoni have taken their fight for justice to federal court in a case seeking over $100 million in damages from the government. This civil lawsuit is being tried without a jury before Judge Nancy Gartner in Boston. Now, the story I just told you about this case only really scratches the surface, and some legal experts believe the wrongful imprisonment of this man is the longest intentional wrongful imprisonment in the nation's history. There are so many intriguing and sometimes frankly, frightening details I could tell our listeners about this case, but I want to get right to our special report guest today. Please welcome Attorney Victor Garrow of Medford, Massachusetts. Attorney Garrow represents Joe Salvati and has represented Salvati in this decades-long battle. Welcome, Victor. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Luann. My pleasure to be here with you. Now, I know how this case got to federal court, but many of our listeners may not. I also want to, before we start mentioned my colleague, WBZ reporter Dan Ray, who was the first to bring this story to light. Dan is the best reporter I've ever worked with. His reports through the years were responsible for keeping the light shining on the pursuit of justice in this case. In fact, I remember one of the most significant days was that chilly March day in 1997, watching Joe Savati walk out of prison. You were there. In fact, you've been there all along. I know you can do a better job, Victor, than I did of explaining the legal twist to this point. Can you fill in the blanks for us? Sure. We could, if you have about five or ten days, we'll be, have plenty of time to do all that. But uh, seriously, first of all, on what you said about Dan Ray, kudos also for me. Uh, what Dan did, uh, and it's very important in this case because the government hates media exposure. And I'd also like to say that uh, it was you at the WBZ station that allowed uh, Dan to do all these stories and encouraged those stories at a time when a lot of people thought that I might have been a wacko and uh, were not believing the fact that I said that there was criminal wrongdoing on the behalf of uh, the federal government and others uh, involved in this case. So I also wish to thank you as well because you were in a position at that time to allow us to tell the story and everything that I've said, everything that I have promised would happen, has happened in this case. And um, I was with uh, Phil Donahue on his, uh, on his TV show uh, some time ago, and uh, he had flown uh, myself and Joe Silvati in there early to talk about the case and the facts, and he was getting them all mixed up. And I said, Phil, what if I could tell you that I can explain this entire story in about four sentences? He says, Victor, if you can do that, he says, you should take my job. I said, no, no, I got a tough enough job being a trial lawyer. And 
And in reality, this case could be told as follows. This is the whole story. One, the government hid the evidence. Two, they knew he was innocent. Three, they asked for the death penalty. And four, they tried to keep him in prison without ever getting out on parole or commutation because dead men tell no tales, and they did not want this story to be told. And that has happened throughout this entire case. I first became involved with Joe Silvati and his family probably about latter part of 1977 or early part of 78, somewhere in that vicinity. The trial uh, took place um, in um, May, June, and July of 1968. I was not his trial lawyer. Um, The murder that he was accused of taking part in took place on March 12th of 1965. And uh, when I first met uh, Joe Salvati in prison, uh, how I met him was that a client of mine was doing some time there, and he called me up and he was talking to me. He said, Victor, there's a fellow here who needs a lawyer, and he's very interesting. So at that time, I was about three years or four years into my own private practice. I had been with the firm for seven years, but I went out on my own in 73. So I said, sure, I'll come and talk to him. Now, mind you, I am not an organized crime lawyer. I am what you call a white-collar criminal defense attorney, so I am not considered to be an OC or organized crime lawyer. When I went to see Joe at prison, when I talked to him, very pleasant, and I said, I don't want you to tell me what you want to say. I said, I want you to tell me what was the evidence by the key witness against you at trial. And he went through that. We spent about two or three hours Man, it just didn't seem to be, there was something wrong with the, the facts. So I said, uh, I'm interested, but I want to do my own research. And I read transcripts, and I went through motions, and I went through briefs, and, and I ultimately uh, took the case. And uh, the, uh, I, re- I asked for a uh, $2,500 retainer at that time. Then uh, sometime later, I found out that they were very, very, you know, didn't have much money. So I ended up giving back uh, the money to them because uh, they really needed it more than I did. And at that time, I said to them, uh, I will stay with you until I uh, walk you out of prison. Mind you, I never thought it would be some 30 years later. I'm still representing Joe and his family. But the way I was brought up, you make a deal, you keep that deal. And these poor people, just because they're not uh, people of means or power uh, or name, doesn't mean that they don't have a right to live the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I took it upon myself, and uh, I have just in my office, I have one secretary and me, myself, just one lawyer, and uh, I took on a case in 1977 or 78 at that time, and a lot of my friends, trial lawyers, said, what the hell are you getting involved with? You're not even an organized crime way. This is about organized crime. And I said, no, it's not about organized crime. It's about a family has gone through a tragedy. It's how love, commitment, and devotion has endured all these decades of a family staying together because of a wife and a husband who was, it was very important for their children to be raised and to live as best they could under the circumstances. And I'd always said this was not a story of organized crime. It's a story of family tragedy, but also of family love that occurred all these decades. So that's how I got involved in the case, Luann. And the, uh, when I went on TV first in the 93 with your station at that time, 
when I said to Dean, I said, this is the most unbelievable miscarriage of justice in the history of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I was really incorrect at that time because my research has shown that it's probably the most unbelievable miscarriage of justice in the history of the United States because this man served 30 years in prison for crime that he did not commit. And we have uh, unearthed the evidence over the years, uh, and I've put over 25,000 free hours of my time in this case, because it's important to me. Uh, the way I was brought up, uh, money was not the object. It's that how can we help people? And uh, that was always important and key in my mind, that we as lawyers can help a lot of people at the same time. Now, mind you, uh, I'm not married and I don't have children, so I was probably able to do this where others who were married and had families and had bills like that could not. But uh, they became my family during this period of time, and they still are today. We're very, very close, and uh, I respect the children. His wife is one of my heroes in life, and uh, Joe, Marie, and the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren uh, are all getting along very well in the sense of at least they're together. Emotionally, it's been a terrible, terrible ordeal with this family and what they had to go through uh, during this period of time. It is an incredible story. I don't think you can articulate that, or at least I can't to the audience, that if you read about it um, and you follow it and, and, and you feel it, I remember you know hearing you say those very words and thinking, you know, he's probably right. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, um, what I'd like to do is is try to move us a little forward. But but first, there were a lot of twists and turns before Mr. Salvati got out of prison. Yes, there were. Was there any one that you felt in your gut, this is the one? Yes, absolutely. It changed the course of history in this case. Um, I had gone through a period of uh, many years of requesting commutations, and I should probably say this to the audience. In Massachusetts, uh, when you are convicted of murder in the first degree, and my client at that time was found guilty of an accessory before the fact of murder, which is treated as a principle in the first degree in Massachusetts, when you are convicted of that in Massachusetts, uh, you have no right to parole. Now, the the... The way that you try to do that is that somewhere after <clears throat> about 20 years imprisonment, you can uh, file 15 to 20 years, you can start filing for commutation. And a commutation in Massachusetts is an extraordinary legal remedy. And what you have to do is that you can have no appeals pending and you cannot have any um, uh, hopes for bringing motions for new trials. And it's uh, administratively done by the uh, parole board. It takes three votes for a person to receive a commutation in Massachusetts, which is akin to a parole. And that is you have to, you have to get uh, a, a vote from the uh, parole board sitting as the advisory board of pardons. Then it goes to a governor's desk, and then he has to approve it. And then it has to go through a third stage, which is the governor's council, a duly elected body. So it takes three votes uh, before you uh, can get out of prison. So the... When I was uh, applying for commutations, uh, I, I, as soon as I get in the case, I was doing that. And the reason for it is I knew I wanted the parole board to know who I was, um, what I stood for, that I wasn't an organized crime lawyer, and 
and, and the arguments that I would make. And a lot of them were very, very nice to me. They were able, they would sit and talk to me for three or four minutes if they had time some days, because I was always knocking on doors. <clears throat> In the period of the 80s, we went through commutations and and no hearings. I was granted a hearing. It was taken away because of uh, false information being given by the federal government to the parole board uh, concerning my client. And uh, uh, so finally, we did. We were granted a hearing on uh, August 21st of 1989. And uh, the biggest break in this case came uh, approximately three weeks before that hearing. I obtained a copy of a hidden police report. And I know you're going to ask me how I got that. But I obtained a copy of this hidden Chelsea police report. And in that report, it had an informant. And the informant mentioned who left and came back from a uh, restaurant dive in Massachusetts, and that it had Joe Barboza leaving with many of his friends uh, to go and uh, kill Teddy Deegan. And then this informant said, and they all came back. And one of them was heard to say, overheard to say, was, um, we nailed him. It's interesting. One of the judges in the case on that term, we nailed him, says, I don't know what that term means. <laughs> he used to be a pharmacist in DA, so I never really understood that, but he had trouble with the term, we nailed him. I, I didn't know whether he thought this was a carpenter or something, so <laughs> I was kind of confused with that myself. But so what happens is I, I, I saw this report, and Joe Savati's name was never mentioned there because Joe was innocent. Joe was never there. And... So then I started to looking into the people who had left the, 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 uh, this uh, restaurant in Revere, Massachusetts. Uh, it was called the Uptide, I believe, at that time. And, um, and I noticed that he left with a, a person who was uh, supposedly a close friend of his. Now, mind you, I was not an organized crime lawyer, so I don't know who these names are. So I had my investigators go out and do research for me about who these people were that left the scene. And um, what had happened was the uh, when Barbosa stated at trial that he had hired Joe Savati to be his getaway car driver, when in fact Barbosa and Savati, Savati was never a member of his gang. So Barbosa had his own gang. He admitted to killing over 38 people in his lifetime. So this was a man... Uh, I used to say many times is the government would have you believe that this man would kill 38 people, but that he would never lie in a court of law because that's where he would draw the line. He would kill you, but he wouldn't lie against you. And uh, so we ended up showing that uh, I was able to show that uh, the person uh, supposed to be the getaway car driver was not Joe Salvati. It was his partner named Vincent Fleming. And what had happened was that a... Uh, when Barboza and his killers went out to kill this uh, fellow named Teddy Deegan in 1965, uh, they were at the scene, and a, uh, a person in a black uh, coat was coming by, and Barboza thought it was the law, and he took off at a high rate of speed. And this uh, captain of the Chelsea Police Department saw that a man in the back seat had a bald head, bald spot. And... Uh, Barboza attributed that to Salvati, who had a big head of hair and still has it to this day. 
that he put on a wig to make him look bald. When in fact, when I did the research prior to the the uh, prior to the parole board hearing in 1989, we found out I did this all within three weeks. Found out that he had a partner named Vincent Fleming who was bald. And then I went into had my uh, people uh, go into his background, and he was as big a killer as, as Barbosa was, and he was always the driver for Barbosa. So here we have I find all this information out three weeks before the before the parole board hearing, and that was the biggest break in this case because it then showed that I was correct in my assessment that Barbosa was always hiding a close friend or an associate, which was, if you remember, was the first story you did in 1993, that I was saying that he was hiding a close friend or an associate, and it was. It turns out to be uh, Vincent Fleming. And so from that moment on, when I, when I then uh, had a hearing before the uh, uh, parole board, they were in shock. Hmm. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we got a unanimous vote uh, for a commutation for Mr. Salvati in 1989, but uh, uh, it was then denied by Governor Weld in 1993. It took four years of wasted time before Salvati even was looked at by a governor, and he denied it. And I should say that later on in 1996, after all further evidence that I obtained, that he changed his mind and he granted him his commutation uh, in uh, just about Christmas time of 1996, and that I ultimately walked Joe Savati out of prison on March 20th of 1997. So the key document at that time in my life and in doing this case was this hidden Chelsea police report because it ultimately showed that who, who were the people that probably did go out on this killing, and one was not Joe Savati. I remember it well. Now I'm going to um, take that uh, what you talked about, the police report, and bring us into federal court. Because while I'm not a lawyer, I'm guessing that that still is an integral part of this civil case now. Take us to the case today. Okay. What happened in this case was after after I had uh, represented uh, Joe Savati and his family from uh, 1997 to 1977, uh, my my strategy was to get Mr. Salvati out of prison first, and then go prove that he was innocent uh, and framed. Uh, it was important for me so he could be home with his wife and his children and his grandchildren, because imagine 30 years in prison for crime being committed. I used, to, I used to ask Joe when I used to see him, because I visited him weekly and sometimes two or three times a week. I said, used to say to him, I asked him, I remember the first question, the first time I did, I said, Joe, tell me something. How do you deal with the fact that you're innocent, you're here in prison. I mean, how do you deal with this, Joe? I mean, with the pressure on you. He's a victim. When I put my head down on the pillow at night, I know I'm innocent, and my God knows I'm innocent. I've got nothing to hide. The people who put me here, I don't know how they live with their conscience, but I have a clear conscience, Victor. And he says, and I had you fight for me on the outside. He used to laugh. I said, sure. He said, I'm doing time with you. I'm always here in prison. <laughs> we, used to, we used to laugh and joke because we had, we had and do have a great relationship. And so we, we've joked and kid about it. But, but he had such a great attitude in prison and, uh, and fostered by his wonderful wife and children. And I'll get into a few of those stories in a minute. But uh, So then I started going around and, and uh, 
then uh, one of my heroes in this case is Judge Mark Wolf here in the federal court in Boston who held hearings uh, and brought out the fact that uh, Vince, uh, that Stephen Flemmy, Vincent Flemmy's brother, and Whitey Bulger were informants for the FBI. And what they were doing was giving evidence to the FBI concerning the alleged mafia in Boston. And so when they ratted on these uh, on the Italians, then they could get away and do everything they wanted. And, and recently they have been indicted for over 19 murders that they committed while uh, informants for the FBI. And uh, Judge Wolf held these he uh, hearings for over a year. And as a result of that, a justice task force was formed uh, to look into the... Uh, the uh, chicanery that was going on in the FBI office in Boston that I had been saying had been happening for decades. And uh, a very significant day in our life was December 19th of 2000. Uh, John Durham, an assistant U.S. attorney from Connecticut who was in charge of the Justice Task Force, uh, came to my office and gave me documents, 26 pages, that showed that the FBI, listen to the words that I'm going to say, they, they had known since 1965 that my client was innocent. And they didn't know it. They knew it from two different and distinct places. One was from reliable informants that Vincent Fleming told them that he had killed Deegan along with Barboza and mentioned some other people. And two, from an illegal wiretap down in Rhode Island on Raymond Patriarca's office, who was the alleged head of the New England crime family. And they had statements uh, and logs taken to the fact that Barboza and Vincent Fleming had been going down to Rhode Island uh, several times to seek the okay from Mr. Patriarca to kill Deegan because they had a personal vendetta against Deegan which is completely different from the story that Barboza told at trial. So they knew also that Barboza was committing perjury in a first-degree murder case. So when Mr. Durham gave me those documents, I was really in a state of shock. I mean, he came to my office about 7 o'clock this night, and I read the documents, and he said, this is an informant, he's an informant, Vincent Flummy was an informant. He said, Vincent Flummy was an informant? Oh, yeah. There were more people who were informants that got away with the murder on Deegan than there were actual participants. Hmm. Do you hear what I said? On that? I do. I said there were more informants that were protected yep. than there were for actual participants in the murder of Deegan. So at that time, um, I looked at all this material, and then um, on January 30th of 2001, all charges were dismissed against uh, my client, Mr. Salvati. And uh, that was the first time that when I walked him out of the courtroom, he was off of parole. All charges had been dismissed. And uh, that was quite an unusual day. And the press at that time, and Dan was one of them, Dan Ray, as well as others, uh, after they uh, had spoken to my client and his wife and children, which they should have, which they did, uh, they then came to me and asked me several questions. And one of the questions they asked me was this. And they said, Mr. Gallo, this has to be one of the greatest moments in your life, that you now have succeeded in having all the charges dismissed against your client, and you've been with him for, at that time, 24 years, 25 years in that vicinity. What a wonderful victory for you. 
And I said, no, it's just the opposite. And they said, what do you mean? Now, the, 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 the cameras are rolling. And they said, what do you mean? I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is the saddest day of my life. They said, don't you understand what just happened? What just happened was that a court of competent jurisdiction has just stated that my client's 30 years in prison were all for naught, that his wife was out without her husband for 30 years, that their children who were aged 4, 7, 9, and 11, or uh, uh, 4, 9, 11, and 13, when he went to prison, that they grew up without their father. I said, how can you give back those 30 years, 30 years, I say to some people, just sit down in your office and sit for five minutes and don't say a word. And tell me how long even five minutes of your life is. And these people got stolen from their lives of 30 years. And it's, it was incredible, absolutely incredible. So as a result of all these uh, evidence that we, we obtained, uh, we have brought suit in the federal court uh, in Massachusetts under the Federal Tort Claims Act uh, to bring uh, some monetary amounts to the families for the pain, suffering, emotional distress that these people have gone through for their lives. And uh, we, we, uh, that's where we find ourselves in court today. Uh, any of the lawyers who have handled any Federal Tort Claims Act cases know that there are 13 exceptions to the Federal Tort Claims Act. And what it does is, as you probably remember, learning in uh, junior high school in the civics classes, that you cannot sue the king. The king, sovereign immunity, they have sovereign immunity, you can't sue them. Well, the Federal Tort Claims Act uh, allows you to go against the federal government, and they waive sovereign immunity on certain situations. And one of the defenses and one of the exceptions is the discretion. And the argument goes like this, that if any government employee uses discretion, uh, then mm. you cannot sue them for that discretionary act. And the government has uh, argued in this case that uh, which informants they used, what evidence they didn't give over, etc., was all discretionary, so you can't sue us. And uh, that's just incredible. Because what they're really saying is, is that the government, the federal government, has a right under the law then to frame innocent people for murder, put them in the electric chair of a life imprisonment, and then when you find out later that they purposely hid this type of evidence, that you have no suit against them. If that's what the law is, then we're really living in Russia. And so that's one of the things that we've been fighting. Another uh, another defense that has been put up by the uh, federal government, the Department of Justice is that the federal government had no duty to disclose to the state because it was this was a the Deegan murder trial was a prosecution by the state and they said we the federal government had no duty to disclose to the state that we had evidence that Mr. Salvati was innocent even though he faced the electric chair we had no duty to disclose the evidence that we had to show that he was innocent. We had no duty to disclose that the illegal wiretap that was done on Raymond Patriarca's offices in Providence, Rhode Island, 
showed that my client and even that Barboza was committing perjury at his at the trial of these uh, pl- uh, these plaintiffs now, and that they had no duty to disclose. And so that's what we've been fighting. There's uh, they the government says they have done nothing. The federal government says they've done nothing wrong. There's never been an apology. There's never uh, anything that they've done like this. And and I've said many times that. With the government saying that they've done nothing wrong, they're trivializing the fact that my client did 30 years in prison, that his wife was without her husband for 30 years, and that the children were without their father for 30 years. And I refuse to let that happen like that. That's why I keep fighting. And now in my 30th year represent, representing the family, and I will keep representing them until justice is finally done. You know, let me ask you a question, Victor, about the disclosure issue. Um, and you know I'm not a lawyer, but I have to ask you um, if it's not their duty, so they say, to disclose, then is it the duty of the defense to discover? Is that their argument? Oh well, the, the, the lawyers filed all the correct all the correct uh, motions. They were, they were, these were the best uh, criminal defense lawyers around at the time who tried the Deegan murder case for the defendants. Uh, but see. What the federal government said, that's a state prosecution. We had nothing to do with that. Well, we've uncovered evidence during this trial. I've been on trial for over three months. We haven't covered the evidence to show that the the FBI and the federal government, Department of Justice, knew everything that was going on in this case, and that there were meetings and that there was evidence going uh, uh, that, that the FBI knew exactly what Barboza, who they had flipped as a witness, what happened was, if, if we recall, uh, Luann, uh, J. Edgar Hoover stated that there was no such thing as organized crime in the United States. <laughs> but in the early 60s, it was proven to him there was, so they decided that they had to go do something against organized crime. So in 1962, they started an illegal wire bar, a tap, a bug, placed in Raymond Patriarca's office in Rhode Island, and it was kept there for about three to three and a half years. And so one of the people that they, they, part of their strategy was to go get informants to rat on people, give them good deals, and see if where that really goes. And so they did. And uh, so in uh, 1967, Barboza, who was a notorious hitman and killer, uh, had, uh, was in prison, and the feds convinced him to talk against the local mafia, alleged mafia. So he did. And he joined them, and he became uh, the poster boy for the Federal Witness Protection Program. And he became the the Federal Witness Protection Program was based for, uh, started because of Joe Barboza. And what they wanted to do, Barboza, this is is what, with one witness, listen to what I'm going to say, in one witness, the federal government, Department of Justice, brought three cases. They went after the uh, Gennaro Angelo, who they said was the head of organized crime in Massachusetts. They went after Raymond Patriarca, who was the alleged head of organized crime in New England. And in the Deegan murder case, they went after the people they thought that they were very close to Patriarca and, and, um, and Angelo. So in, with one witness, they looked like they could wipe out, allegedly, all the hierarchy and their lieutenants 
with one witness. And that's what happened. Angelo went to trial in, um, in 1967. He was found not guilty. Raymond Tejaka went to trial in federal court in March of, I believe, March of 1968, and he was found guilty. And in the Deegan murder trial, a state prosecution, that they were found guilty on July 31st of 1968. So with one witness, they were able to go against the entire hierarchy, the alleged hierarchy of organized crime. And that's what they did. And as we now know, with all the evidence we have, that Barboza committed perjury. Uh, he had recantations later on. Uh, he committed perjury. We have the evidence to show that he had committed perjury. The government says, no, we didn't know he was committing perjury. Uh, we have the evidence to show that that's not so, and that's the evidence that we've been uh, putting uh, into, uh, into, the, uh, into the trial. And that's where uh, the case stands. Right now we're filing. We ended all evidence about a week and a half ago, after about three months, and while we're working on um, a request for findings of fact, uh, rulings of law, uh, filing briefs, and we're going to have the, uh, the closing arguments will be made on February 27th of uh, 2007. Now, um, this civil case, Victor, is before a single judge, correct? That is correct. Under the Federal, under the federal Tort Claims Act, it is a non-jury trial before a judge. Now, I know there were some uh, pretty heavy hitters, or maybe I shouldn't use that word, heavy hitters. Uh, maybe I should say more pretty significant witnesses testifying. Um, F. Lee Bailey, former governor, Michael Dukakis. Um, but more importantly, I want you to tell us about uh, Mr. Salvati, Mr. Lamoni, Mrs. Salvati. What did they say in federal court? Well, uh, let me... I, I can speak for Mr. Salvati and, and his wife. Uh, and Mr. Lamoni and his wife and their children, they did a great job on their testimony that they gave. But uh, I'm going to give you some insight into the Salvati family and, and what their testimony was about. Um, when, when Joe Salvati was arrested on October 25th of 1967, uh, Marie Salvati's life changed forever as well as her young children, four young children. And uh, they, uh, she had to now be the breadwinner. Uh, she had to go get a job. She had to learn how to drive a car because she wanted to visit her husband in prison. By the way, she visited her husband in prison every week for all those years that he was incarcerated. For, from 1967, October 25th of 1967, until he was released in 1997 on uh, parole commutation. She would visit him once a week in prison on the weekends. And she used to bring the children with her every other weekend so that uh, they could uh, bring up the children the correct way. Now, how they did that was a very interesting story in and of itself. What, what, they, what they agreed to is that Joe would, she would never ask Joe what problems were going on in prison, and he would never ask her what problems were going on hmm. In, in with bringing up the kids in at home. And so what they would do is they would come and they would talk about the kids would tell their father what was going on, what was happening, how they're doing in school, but nothing really talked about 
uh, even when there were riots, um, she would not ask him those questions. Um, he says, I'll do my time in here, and I know you're doing your time out there, but the most important thing is our kids. So let's bring them up as best we can with this convoluted way that we have to do it. And that's what they did. And they have four wonderful children. And I've become very close to the family, as you know, the man that, as we jokingly call it, Joe, Marie, and the four kids, they're my family too. They've mm-hmm. become part of my family uh, for all the years that I have represented them. And we have uh, become very close. And so Marie Salvati and Joe Salvati are a very interesting uh, couple. I used to go, starting in about the mid-'80s, Joe and I had talked about it, that uh, the kids were growing older, and they wanted to know what was happening. And uh, so where I used to work out is about maybe three to four times a year, I'd have, like, family meetings, although they could call me at any time also. And I had family meetings, and I would tell them what was going on because uh, they always were looking for tomorrow. Maybe this is your year. Maybe Dad can get out. And Marie said, maybe my husband can get out this year. And so uh, I would tell them what was going on. And I used to give them four little letters, H-O-P-E, hope, Hmm. which is because that's what all they lived on. They lived on the hope of this fat, bald lawyer, hoping that he might be able to do something to help them. And I was committed to do so. And in the 80s, where we could turn down commutation after commutation, and then commutation again, and then motions for new trial, losing, and and uh, it was very tough uh, during those days. So on one of the occasions when I went to Marie Salvati's uh, uh, apartment, a small little apartment, uh, and I'm talking to the kids in here, I see this card on, on the TV, and I said, Marie, um, can I go look at that card? She said, sure. And I go over to the card on top of the TV, and it's a romantic uh, love card, for better words. And I said, Marie, what is this? Uh, Well, it's from Joe. I said, can I read the inside? And she said, sure. And I think the first one that I read was, we'll be together soon, Miss Marie. Maybe this is our year. Love, Joe. I love you so much. Hmm. And I said, Marie, what is this card? Well, she says, every Thursday, my husband sends me a card like this. And he puts something personal on the inside. And she says, every week, when I get it, I take down the old one and put up the new one. And she's that way there. When I'm busy in a boat in the apartment... And I see the card. I said, there's my Joe. Hmm. And, and then I said, to you, I said to Marie, but what do you do with the card? She says, and she broke down crying at this time. And I thought I had done something bad, and I didn't know what to say. And she says, I have kept every one of these cards in shoeboxes. And she says, Victor, my life has been lived in a shoebox. But they would not let their love die because of what the government had been doing to them. And through their own love and devotion and commitment to each other, they kept that light burning of love in just these small little ways that meant so much to them in such a big way. And, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible tale of love that uh, they uh, have stayed together all these years. and They're very happy today. And... 
Uh, I have to tell you something that also applies to the case because it happened in my own in my own family. And uh, my father, my father was brought up in abject poverty, and my mother was orphaned at age three. And my mother was Irish, and my father was Italian. And my father uh, and mother found each other, and they fell in love. And they went with each other for two years, and then they were married for uh, 55 years until my mother passed away in 88. And my dad uh, passed away in 98. And uh, when I went to law school, and I graduated law school, and we got sworn in, I got sworn in the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, and my mom and dad took me to lunch at one of the local restaurants. And I noticed that my mom and dad uh, were not so jovial. They got a little serious during the lunch. And I said, Mom, Dad, is something wrong? My father says, well, we, we, we want to say something to you. And I says, what's that, Daddy? And he said, you know, son, we're very proud of you, of what you've accomplished so far. He says, well, thank you. I'm proud of you and Mother that gave me the chance to have this education. You worked so hard for it. And they said, this is the only advice we're going to give to you unless you ever ask it from us. And I said, this is important to you, huh? And they said, yes. They both said yes. And I said, what is it, Dad? You know, son, you're now a lawyer. You can go help people. Hmm. Mom and I want you to go help people. Don't do it just for the money. The money will come. I'm still waiting for the money. But <laughs> they said, it's more important that you help people. That's what we really believe. And you'll have the, 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 the ability to go help people. That's what we want you to do. And so I've always taken that into, into how I've handled my law practice for 41 years, that I have not ever done things for money. It's been really done for, to help people. And to that end, uh, when Joe was in prison, he used to uh, call uh, my house all the time, and he got very friendly with my mother on the phone. My mother was just the greatest person in the world. If you ever met my mother, you just fall in love with her. She had great. So I made her my home secretary because I, I was one man in our office, and the way you survive is to give 24-hour uh, service. And so uh, I, I said, I'm going to pay you. Mom. She said, no, I don't want any money. I said, no, no, you're my home secretary. So I got her a, 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 a thing that says, a, a, a stick at home, and it says, K. Garrow, home secretary. And, I, and it was placed right at the telephone. And I said, Mother, this is your... your uh, uh, situation that you're, you're going to be called K. Garrow, Home Secretary, to me. And she says, Victor, that's terrific. She says, oh, thank you. So Joe used to call her for years. and would talk to her all the time. And then my mother got sickly in the middle 80s. And, uh, and my dad used to take care of her during the day, and I would take care of my mother at night. And uh, my mother and I would always have, uh, I would get in from the office uh, working and about, Eight o'clock, seven thirty-eight. My mother would be waiting, maybe have a bite for me. But I would always bring something sweet home, uh, some cookies, some brownies, some ice cream, and we would sit for an hour and and talk about all the things that were going on. And then I'd bring her upstairs and and do what I had to do to put her comfortably in bed. So uh, this uh, this one day, this one night, my mother says to me, she says, "I have something to say to you." Uh oh. What I do wrong, mommy? No, she's nothing. She's, you know, I've been talking to Joe now for years, Joe Silvati, and I hear you and your dad talking about the case all the time. And I believe he's innocent, too. And I says, he is, mother. 
She says, I know. But she says, I want you to make me a a promise. And I said, what's that, Mom? And she said, I want you to promise me that you're going to stay with him until you walk him out of prison. I said, Mommy, it's that important to you? She says, yes, because, Victor, this is a nice family, and you're working so hard, no one's ever going to put all this time and effort into it. So she says, I want you to make me that promise. And I said, Mommy, I promise you. Now, I don't know whether it was three months, four months, two months, five months, six weeks, my mother passed away. And so uh, with the Department of Corrections here in Massachusetts that were absolutely wonderful, they knew about my promise to my mother. And that's why if you, when you remember when on March 20th in 1997, there was only two people that walked out of the front door at that time, and that was Joseph, Adi, and myself, so we could keep my promise to my mother. And then I gave him to his family, and then we had to go to the parole board, parole officer. And then what we did is Dan was the only one I allowed in the camera, if you remember. And we went to my mother's grave and with Joe Salvati, myself, uh, Mrs. Salvati, and my dad, and Dan. That I put, He said, I don't want this on right now. Dan, I'm not doing this for publicity. I said, but there should be a memorialization of this. And so... Uh, we brought red roses, and we put the red roses on my mother's grave, and I says, I kept my problems. I do remember that story, Victor. And uh, you mentioned uh, with Marie and Joe Salvati a great devotion in the face of incredible adversity. Absolutely. But clearly it applies to you as well. Um, federal court, um, Closings are on February 27th. Yes. Judge Nancy Gertner will then write a ruling. We've been told uh, by Judge Gertner that uh, we will we we'll be making our closings on February 27th, and she has indicated that she will have a decision for us in March. You must be looking forward to that. Yes, I am, uh, for many reasons, uh, Louie um, it's it's probably the first time in all my years of representing the family that we've been able to put before one tribunal all the evidence that we have obtained concerning the uh, the chicanery that has been going on in the federal government for over four decades, and to have uh, the ability to bring that in and to uh, to let let a uh, one of the finest judicial uh, uh, jurists in the country, listen to what we have had to put up with, what the family has had to put up with, with the children who had to put up with the taunting and teasings that they had while they were growing up. Your father's a murderer. People, some uh, families, they wouldn't let their their sons go out with the daughters because of the father was a murderer and alleged murderer, and uh, all the all the the heartache that this family went through for all these years and uh uh it's been it's been a uh a journey that is the most unbelievable journey i think that a lawyer can ever take when you're able to free an innocent man from prison on hard work and on your gut and what you thought and i've had a lot of help on the way from like yourself and dan ray uh we've been on 60 minutes with mike wallace and the press has been um, very good uh, to us in listening to the things that we have had to say all during this period of time. And 
It's just that I believe, Luann, as I said at the very beginning, and maybe this is a good way that I can end it too, is that I fight for all of my clients and for all of us, and especially in this case, that we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It isn't up to the federal government that says, we know what's best for you. We decide if you live or die. We decide if you live with your wife or you don't. We decide whether or not that you can live with your children or not. No, that's playing God. That's why we have a system of law and we look for justice. Because justice is for all of us. No matter what our status in life is, it doesn't matter what color it is, justice is for all of us. And when the justice that we seek is manipulated, then it hurts our entire justice system. And in this case, justice was manipulated unbelievably so. Well said. You know, there aren't enough hours in the day to tell all the pieces of this story, but Victor Garrow, I want to thank you so very much for sharing this time with us at the Legal Talk Network with our audience. I know they will enjoy listening to this, and we all look forward to the conclusion of this federal case. We'll watch it very carefully, and I hope that you'll join us again once we know what that is. It will always be my pleasure, Luann. Uh, You're one of the people who I respect so much that did so much for us at a time when a lot of people did not believe in my story or the case. You were there for us. I will always be here for you. Whenever you want to call, I'm glad to be part of what you're doing. Thanks very much, Victor Garrow, Attorney Victor Garrow of Medford, Massachusetts, who has represented Joseph Salvati for three decades and counting. I want to thank you very much for joining us. This is Louie Reeb for the Legal Talk Network.